Welcome to Voir Dire, conversations from the criminal justice policy program at Harvard Law School. I'm your host, Skylar Dom, and this week I'm talking to Anand Swaminathan, who is a partner at Lovie & Lovie. Lovie & Lovie is probably best known for its civil rights work on behalf of people who have been wrongfully convicted in the criminal system. But we're going to talk broadly about civil rights litigation and what civil rights litigators can do to help change the criminal system. So here's our conversation. I think when people think about criminal justice work or criminal legal work, they think like prosecutors, public defenders, those are easy to define jobs. Civil litigation is a little bit fuzzier. So if you, I don't know if you have kids or if you're at a holiday party or something like that, how do you describe what you do? Sure. Um, you know, so in terms of our civil rights work, uh, I generally say that we essentially prosecute constitutional cases. So uh, we use the civil litigation process to prosecute people's claims that their constitutional rights were violated by state actors. I remind people, usually, especially non-lawyers, that the Constitution doesn't really have much to say about the relationship between us two as individual private citizens. The Constitution is really about the relationship between citizens and their government. Right? It places limitations on how the government treats us. And so when the government violates its, essentially, agreements with the members of the society, those agreements in particular being the constitutional floor that is set for how they can treat uh, citizens, um, our job is to essentially help citizens enforce their rights against uh, the government, in particular state actors, be they federal state actors, federal officials, uh, or uh, state or municipal actors, police officers, correctional officers, etc. Maybe we could talk a little bit we could break down like what those types of cases look like. So what are the different categories of claims that people might bring? Mm-hmm. So uh, some of the different types of cases that we bring under the Constitution uh, are, so one category is wrongful conviction cases. Those are cases in which we basically allege somebody was convicted of a crime that they did not commit. To bring those cases, there has to be a predicate, and that predicate is you have to prove that you were you essentially have to have your conviction thrown out. If you are currently under a conviction for a crime, you can't bring a constitutional civil rights case alleging that your conviction was false or fraudulent or wrongful. If you go through a post-conviction process in criminal court to establish that there's a problem with your conviction, either that you're innocent, either that there are constitutional violations in your trial, etc., if you can use those things to then have your conviction thrown out, then you have the ability to potentially bring a constitutional civil rights claim saying, my conviction, which has now been thrown out, was not just some mistake, it was the product of constitutional violations by state actors, usually police officers. Um, so, so one category of constitutional civil rights cases is cases we bring on behalf of people who's con- who have been exonerated and who are now alleging that it was constitutional violations by officers that caused um, them to, to, to be wrongfully convicted. Can so, we double-click on that for a second? Then we'll, yeah. I'm sure there are other categories. Yeah. So um, why would someone want to, I mean, as you said, they've gone through the criminal system, they've had some kind of vindication or exoneration, then what's the next step for them? Why, why does a client end up in your office and say, I want to I keep fighting this? Sure. Uh, first and foremost, because the act of being exonerated and getting out of prison gets you the thing you need first and foremost, which is to get your liberty back. But you have still lost 
X years, for many of our clients, 20 or more years of their life. And one question they're all asking is, how did this happen to me? And in many cases, they know how it happened to them. They know that an officer came to trial and lied. They know that witnesses were manipulated into saying that they committed the crime. And they know that because they're innocent. They couldn't possibly have been picked by a witness legitimately or four witnesses legitimately when they didn't have anything to do with the crime. So they know that whatever those things were that were used to obtain their conviction, they know those things were false. And so there is a deep desire to not just have their conviction thrown out, but to prove that this happened because somebody did a grievous wrong to me. Uh, and they want to prove that. Uh, and no doubt they also want to have an opportunity to have a jury put their stamp on this and say, this person violated my constitutional rights. Uh, on top of that, many of our clients say, I want to get to the truth. I want to use this as an opportunity to prove the kinds of things that police officers and certain departments are doing so that it might help other people. Because all these guys know other innocent people who are sitting in prison with them over many years. And last but not least, of course, they want some monetary compensation um, for what has happened to them. They have lost, for most of them, their 20s and 30s. Most of them have lost the ability to ever have uh, uh, you know, children, to raise children. They've lost, some of them had children, but very young children before they got locked up. And they lost the entire ability to raise these young kids. Um, the devastation that's wreaked on families uh, in these communities is uh, it, it's really impossible to describe. And they want some redress for that. So, that, yeah, when you get to that stage where you're talking about damages, how do you start to enumerate the specific injuries that someone has um, suffered when they've lost, like, 30 years of their life? I don't think you can ever fully capture it for a jury. You know, that group of people sitting in, in a jury box and your client sits down uh, across from them and has to try to explain in the course of a couple hours, let alone a day, let alone a week, try to explain to them what that experience of prison was like. You can never do it justice. Um, you can only try to give them a flavor of what it is about. You can try to give them a diagram. You can try to explain what it means to live in a cell from which you can put one hand, you can spread your arms wide and touch both walls. You try to give them a sense of what that means. Um, you try to give them a sense of the sort of the horror, the torture, the solitary confinement, uh, you know, the, the constant vigilance, the constant fear that somebody's going to uh, uh, hurt you, that there's constant violence around you at all times. Trying to explain all that, you can try your best. You can explain the cockroaches. You can explain severe cold, severe heat. You can talk about all those things, and that's what we do. Um, but I don't think we've ever felt like we finished a trial and we really gave the jury the full picture of what our client's experience was like to spend 20 years sitting in prison. I don't think we could ever do it. Mm. And we're always looking for better ways to try to do it within the confines of the trial system that we have. So... What you were just describing was also things that people who weren't innocent suffered, and I wonder if that might bring us to a second category of litigation that you guys do. I understand you do some prison rights or conditions litigation. Absolutely. So another category of litigation we do, another area of constitutional civil rights work that we do, is we represent people who are mistreated in prisons, who may be rightfully convicted, who may be properly in prison, but they still have rights. Uh, they still have a right to be treated fairly by the government when the government chooses to take their liberty and hold them essentially in their custody um, and essentially is responsible uh, for the conditions of their living. Um, and so the, primarily those cases that we do are cases involving denials of medical care, 
Um, we do also do work in terms of prison conditions more generally. Um, but the primary area is denials of medical care. And so from a constitutional perspective, those are usually claims brought under the Fourth, Fourteenth, and Eighth Amendments. Now, for somebody who has been convicted, it is an Eighth Amendment claim that essentially is a form of cruel, a claim that it is a form of cruel and unusual punishment to deny the medical care. Um, so uh, those category of cases are, are those in which we're basically saying the medical care that you provided was so deficient that it violated a, a basic constitutional floor. And nobody says you're entitled to, under the Constitution, you're not entitled to gold standard medical care in prison. Far from it. But you are entitled to a baseline. And if you can't meet even that very low baseline, you have violated someone's constitutional rights. And usually that takes the form of really egregious forms of uh, uh, denials of medical care. We're talking about people who've had have type 1 diabetes, uh, the insulin program that they're put on in the prison is insufficient to control their blood sugars. Their blood sugars go up 200, 300, 400. They don't change their insulin dosages in any way and ultimately die of diabetic ketoacidosis over a course of weeks. Really bad. Um, denial of anti-seizure medications, desire of uh, denial of anxiety medications, depression medications, types of things where it is well known in the medical community that the abrupt withdrawal of these medications can have very severe uh, uh, impacts. Um, and when those things happen and you see severe symptoms and nothing is done about it, that's a real problem. And it happens far too often. And it happens, we think, even more so now because there is the outsourcing of medical care in prisons. And that has become an increasingly common phenomenon in which counties, states, municipalities are outsourcing the medical care to private health care companies. And the incentives that are put in place are very straightforward, which is basically the less medical care you provide, the higher your profits are. And so the inevitable result of that is that the medical care has gotten worse. Uh, and we think it is a real problem. I don't think even a capitalist, a raging capitalist, could defend that incentive model because capitalists would normally say, you don't need regulation because if you're, if you're a bad doctor or you're, you know, your phone isn't a good product, we'll pick a different doctor, we'll pick a different phone, we'll vote with our feet. Prisoners don't have that option. Mm. Um, so there is no inherent natural way for them to say, your service is substandard, I'll choose another one, which is what capitalists would normally like to use to, to justify deregulation. It doesn't work in this setting. So I'm curious why specifically uh, denial of medical medical care cases. It was a, 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 just a practical reality, which is that we were just getting tons and tons of letters from prisoners complaining about denials of medical care. And we got to a point where we were saying, we are seeing way too many of these, and the fact patterns are getting worse and worse. We can't just sit idly by. Uh, and so we decided to start a prisoner's rights clinic. We had an attorney who came in and sort of, sort of led that group, and then a lot of the other attorneys in the firm also do that work as part of a broader practice, but we have a one attorney, we have one attorney who does it full-time, and it really came out of just the demand that we were seeing mm. and the need for the type of work. That's interesting, because I always, I don't know, over the course of my legal education in life, I feel like I've ended up on the sort of intake, you know, intake phone calls where we have folks calling from prison, and they're describing horrible stuff and there's, like, no one to refer them to, right? It's just like, oh, you might want to try personal legal services, but they only take, um, you know, but they only take a very small slice of, of cases. So it's interesting to hear that yours actually was driven just by letters that you were receiving. Um, so 
And then those those that type of prison litigation is that typically those are on behalf of individuals. Do you, is there ever um, a reason or a possibility of class action work, or how does that look? We do class action litigation in the prison setting. It's probably the first area in which we began to do class action work, and we now do some consumer fraud class action work here and there. And it came out of actually us originally doing class action work in the prison setting. And some of the original uh, uh, class action litigation we did in the prison setting uh, related to prison conditions like, you know, there was a proper bedding in the prisons, keeping people for more than 48 hours in certain settings without access to medical care or their medications. Um, we had, uh, we had we, we have a class action going on now involving a very vividly named thing called nuts to butts, which was a thing that happened in the Illinois Department of Corrections in which they took a whole group of inmates uh, basically stripped them down naked and made them line up so that one person's body was flat against the next person's mm. body. And if there was any space between one person and the next person's genitalia, they would physically beat them. Um, and so we did a, a prison, con- basically that's a form of a prison conditions case mm-hmm. um, that, we, that we're doing as a class action now. Um, so, uh, yes, the short answer, the long answer is, uh, was that, and the short answer is yes, we do class actions in the prison today. Uh... I don't know if this is sort of private partnership stuff, but I wonder if there are, when, you, when you're thinking about, and I know we haven't hit every practice area, but that was just making me think, um, as you're thinking about the different types of cases you're taking or opening up a practice area like the prison um, litigation area, are there, like, loss leaders? Like, do you have certain practice areas that you think that this is a higher impact area and we can sort of subsidize this practice with doing um, other kinds of work. And the reason why I ask is I had a conversation with um, Blake Strode, who runs Arch City Defenders, and he was talking about how their impact litigation unit actually is now starting to help fund a lot of their other stuff. So I'm just interested in the idea of um, effective management for impact. Um, that's a good question. I, I, the, the term loss leaders is a hard one for me to sort of <laughs> yeah, accept because sorry. it feels so economic. Yeah. And, sort of, and, and we really MBA in me, and, sorry. Right, and we aren't... Uh, I mean, if we were smart and rational and we were profit-maximizing, we should be thinking that way. We, we don't. I think we kind of take a pride in not thinking that way. Uh, and the idea is we understand as a general matter to essentially be a 40-plus person, a 40-plus attorney law firm with support staff and everything else uh, that relies entirely on contingency cases. Um, we have to have some larger damages cases. We have to have a substantial number of larger damages cases. We can't sustain an entire practice on... Um, small damages cases. Beyond that, we don't engage in a very sophisticated model of saying, you know, let's uh, let's make sure, let's use this to, to be able to fund this other thing. Um, what we are doing more is we're saying, we know that we wrongful conviction cases are large damages cases. We know that occasional um, jail death cases or, or those types of things can ultimately result in larger damages. We know that to sustain our practice, we need to be doing at least some significant percentage of our work in that in those areas. Um, and then beyond that, we're basically going to be focused on justice causes, whatever the justice causes are that get us fired up uh, and feel wrong and they feel like something we can take on and we can come up with meritorious claims, we'll take it on. And it may fit within our traditional buckets in which we practice, and it may not. Um, uh, and whether, you know, and we know that being successful as we have historically been, in the 50 to 60 percent of cases that are wrongful commission cases and, and a few others that are larger cases from a monetary perspective, 
we know that we'll be able to fund all of the other things that we want to do that may not necessarily be large damages cases. Uh, and those, those happen to take a lot of different forms, including, you know, smaller damage prisoner cases, um, police beat-em-up cases where somebody's damages may not be huge, but the conduct of the officer was really egregious, uh, et cetera. How do you think about taking a case? When someone, I mean, I'm sure you get tons of calls. Um, and so what's a, what's a phone call or a memo that lands on your desk where you're like, oh, God, i got to take this? Uh, those take a lot of forms. Um, so, you know, like a lot, when it comes to the, wrong, when it comes to the wrongful conviction cases, uh, those are sort of a unique category because if somebody comes to us with a wrongful conviction case, it's because they've already been exonerated, right? And when somebody's been exonerated, you can figure out very quickly whether they have a strong case. And usually they do because to get exonerated, uh, to have somebody throw out, to have a criminal judge throw out a conviction by a jury takes a lot. It's a, it's a very hard bar to meet. And if you can meet that bar, you've really probably presented some powerful evidence. Now, there are categories of cases in which you have an exoneration that may not be suited very well for constitutional civil rights cases. You might have an ineffective assistance of counsel claim that resulted in a conviction being thrown out. That doesn't necessarily implicate any officer misconduct, and maybe there, often there isn't any in those types mm -hmm. of cases. Um, you might have other cases in which there was prosecutor misconduct that, was, that caused the wrongful conviction and, and resulted in a conviction being thrown out. Usually there's immunity for prosecutors, and you wouldn't be able to bring a constitutional civil rights case in those instances. You can suss that out pretty quickly when someone comes to you with a wrongful conviction case. Um, and if it doesn't fit into one of those categories, and you look at the underlying investigation, you usually learn that there was some witness manipulation. There was a confession that was coerced from this person, um, and so on. And you can quickly tell that those are constitutional cases, and those call out to you. It's <laughs> because when you see that and you hear about you know, somebody suffering in prison for as long as they have, and to have fought for themselves to prove their innocence, uh, uh, and often fought for decades to prove their innocence. It's compelling. It jumps out at you. Um, you know, but the same thing happens with uh, with police shooting cases. The same thing happens with uh, with cases of somebody saying, you know, I was in the street. I was having a conversation with my friend. They mistook me for somebody else. They grabbed me and they threw me on the ground and they beat me up. Um, you know, those cases jump out at you. They make you angry. They, they make you feel like this is the problem with the society. This is why people have no faith and no trust in police officers. Um, and uh, so, you know, cases jump out at you in a lot of ways. The cases that stick out in your mind are the ones where you actually feel like a real injustice occurred and you feel like you can't do anything about it. Um, cases where uh, things like qualified immunity create a real problem. And what do you mean by qualified so, immunity? So qualified immunity is a sort of a, I'll sound like an originalist for a moment, it is a judge-made doctrine uh, that has been essentially laid on Section 1983. So Section 1983 is a statute by Congress that says individuals can pursue a private cause of action for violations of their constitutional rights by state actors, police officers, etc. Courts have created this doctrine called qualified immunity that says, well, if the poor officer didn't know that what he was doing would violate someone's constitutional rights, they shouldn't be held liable. And we'll call that qualified immunity. And the doctrine essentially has been laid out in such a way that if you can't establish that in some prior case, an appellate court or the Supreme Court said that particular type of conduct was a constitutional violation, then they'll say, well, the officer wouldn't know that this was a violation of constitutional rights. And so 
Unfortunately, from our perspective, unfortunately, that has resulted in a scenario where unless you come up with an exact set of facts that look so close to this one, an officer might be able to say that there's qualified immunity. Now, thankfully, I think when you have clear cases of constitutional violations, courts have not got out of their way to say, oh, well, this, the facts are, that was seven shots, this was five shots, you know, mm-hmm. this took place in an alley, this took place in open daylight. They could. I mean, the, the, the law is in such a position that it could be used in ways that are that are really subversive. But for the most part, in our experience, it hasn't happened that way. But that does mean that there are certain types of cases that can be really problematic. Right now, I'm working with an immigrant rights organization, uh, and we're looking at potential cases on behalf of families who've been victims of this child separation policy of the current Trump administration. Um, and certainly we're exploring potential Bivens claims. That's essentially the same thing as Section 1983 claims, but when you're suing federal officials. And we're looking at potential Section 1983 claims because sometimes there are uh, local jails that are participating in some of the child separation and the conditions for these families. One of the big problems is qualified immunity. There are not cases that are specifically taking on the issue of separating children from their parents, because historically we haven't been doing this. So there isn't an appellate court case or Supreme Court case that defines a constitutional right on this set of facts. Mm. So while it seems like in many ways like an obvious constitutional violation, um, there's a good chance that we could establish that it was a violation of the Constitution, but there would be no redress because... There's no, it wasn't clearly established law under existing appellate and Supreme Court cases, and therefore there'd be qualified immunity. Uh, so those are the kind of cases that stick out to you because you feel like, boy, is there an injustice there. Um, but there may not be uh, a, a meritorious claim that we could perceive. I wonder how your work sort of fits into how you work with other stakeholders in criminal justice reform or people who work within the criminal legal system. So I think that's a hard one. We do work, uh, you know, on, on a regular basis. We are interacting with um, public defenders, with criminal defense attorneys. Um, we are regularly going to prosecutors and saying, take a look at this case, give this case a second look. Um, there are problems with this case in the exoneration context. Um, we, are, uh, we work regularly with uh, nonprofit organizations. I mentioned an immigrant rights organization that we're working with on potential cla- uh, claims. We've worked with uh, the ACLU of Illinois, uh, Michigan. Uh, we're, we're potentially partnering with others. Uh, I've worked with the Center for Constitutional Rights on some cases. Um, so, so we do a lot of things with a lot of different organizations. But I do think uh, something that we as a firm uh, have been spending a lot more time thinking about is how can we do a better job of partnering with with more people. And in particular, how can we do a better job of disseminating what we're learning in civil discovery in our cases? Uh, Because we learn so much through civil discovery in our cases, and we work very hard to leave no stone unturned in our civil discovery in, in these cases. And at the end of all that work, sometimes multiple years of discovery, um, we present all that information to 12 jurors and one judge. And that's it. And I think that's sometimes not satisfying. And I think we're starting to realize there's an audience who wants to know more about all this stuff. There's awareness that we have the ability to bring. Um, uh, you know, a good example of that is the Lackawanna McDonald case. Uh, and I think many people might, might know about that now, but that is a case in Chicago in which uh, basically a young man was shot and killed by a Chicago police officer named Jason Van Dyke. Uh, he was recently convicted and, and sentenced. 
the officer, I mean. Uh, and the history of that case was basically that, uh, you know, Lackawanna McDonald was shot on the south side of Chicago. Uh, there was a police, sort of an official version of what happened, according to the police, in which the young man, you know, allegedly attacked an officer with a knife, and then the officer was forced to shoot him uh, 16 times, uh, and he died. And there was this official narrative that this guy was out of his mind, he was going crazy, and he was attacking the officers, and there was nothing he could do. Um, and a whistleblower, somebody came forward and told a civil rights lawyer in Chicago uh, that you might want to get your hands on the dash cam video or body cam video related to this shooting because it tells a very different story. That resulted in a number of organizations, uh, media organizations, seeking a copy of the video or any video that the police department had. Uh, those requests were all denied. Those were all Freedom of Information Act requests that were denied. And uh, ultimately, uh, a blogger, sort of an independent journalist, came to our firm, uh, and we have a lawyer who, who focuses primarily on FOIA litigation, Freedom of Information Act litigation around the country. And the blogger said, will you help me try to get this video? The, the response that we're getting from the city of Chicago is, we won't produce this video in response to FOIA because it actually has the potential to be very embarrassing and cause, cause great disruption in the society. Uh, and he said, is that a legitimate basis to withhold information? And it seems my like colleague said, no. <laughs> you know, embarrassment the opposite, to the, exactly, right? Like, embarrassment. That's exactly, yeah, that's hilarious. Exactly. And, and so, remarkably, nobody else had fought this, uh, this denial on this uh, totally specious grounds. And so, uh, thankfully, my colleague uh, took the case uh, and did the FOIA litigation, and a court ruled that the video had to be released. And so um, the video was released, and there was an, a massive uh, outcry about I didn't the, realize that, that you guys were responsible for the release of the video. Yes. Uh, and But I think, you know, in some ways, I viewed it as uh, sort of a, a great shame in a certain way about uh, how civil rights lawyers have, have been practicing for a long time, because... What was shown in that video is something that we've known for a very long time. We've seen a lot of other cases like that. We've seen a lot of other police shootings where things like that have happened. But the public wasn't educated about that. The public didn't know about that. We hadn't effectively shared those stories, whether we've gotten settlements, we've gotten judgments, we've gotten verdicts in those other police shooting cases. But we haven't affected people's attitudes in any meaningful way. And obviously video uh, and dash cam video and those types of things are definitely changing the world, and they're making it much possible to sort of present information to people in a way that's vivid and they can see it. But I do think it also is, to some extent, a statement about uh, us as civil rights lawyers in the civil litigation sphere not doing a good enough job of taking this information that we learn, all this proof we develop of, mis uh, of misconduct, of these types of things that were displayed in that video, and making sure that it gets communicated to, um, to the outside world, to activists, to organizers, to politicians, to the media, etc. Um, so that it can impact criminal justice reform, among other things. And the Lackawanna McDonald video ultimately caused some major changes in the city because it create, it was vivid and it created a way for the activists and organizers and protesters and, and um, people in the community to get really to understand what was happening. And, you know, I should, I should pause to say I don't, want to take, I don't want that civil piece of litigation to take too much credit because that civil piece of litigation was a necessary but not sufficient condition. It was a piece, the work that activists and organizers and protesters, and the work of those people who took that 
and, and did so much with it over the ensuing years. They're the ones who really made it happen, but that video was part of that catalyzing process. Mm. You're litigating against sort of very big actors or implicating you know, police departments and mm -hmm. uh, municipalities, and I wonder how you conceptualize that. It's very hard for me to articulate how I feel when I think about the kind of actors we're dealing with. I'll tell you some of the things that I think on some days. Uh, one is, uh, I am very happy to be litigating uh, in a lot of different places now. Our firm litigates nationally. We're not only in Chicago. Probably far less than 50% of our cases are in Chicago at this point. There's something really nice about that. Uh, first and foremost, when we litigated primarily against the city of Chicago, it starts to get frustrating. You litigate against the same defendant so often, you win settlements, verdicts, judgments, uh, tens of millions, more, more, more. It doesn't change anything. Policies don't change in the city of Chicago. Uh, you feel like you're beating your head against the wall. Um, and that can be a little bit demoralizing. I mean, we are able to achieve profound results for individual clients, and that's really meaningful, especially when you develop the kind of relationships we do with our clients. But as an attorney, as somebody who chose to go into the public interest sphere, it can be, it's tough to see nothing really change sometimes. Um, we've gone to other uh, municipalities and we see change. I litigated, litigated a case in my hometown, Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, it was a police shooting case. Uh, it was a case that was very personal to me because it was where I grew up and um, it was a young African-American man who I just, it, it, it was a tragedy. And uh, we litigated his case to the fullest and um, to the credit of the Madison Police Department, by the end of the case, they changed their use of force policy. They felt, based on the evidence we had developed, that they needed to make a change to their policies. That mattered to, to us. Um, one case caused that change in that municipality. A hundred cases have not changed anything with the policies in the city of Chicago. The state of Wisconsin changed its policies about the way it investigates officer-involved shootings based on that case. So two entities, two law enforcement entities, the Madison Police Department and the state of Wisconsin's Department of Justice, changed policies based on one case in the state of Wisconsin. Um, that was just so different from what we, what, we, what we see in Chicago. So there is something really nice about litigating in other places. Um, you know, the other thing that I, I want to say about a place like the city of Chicago is Chicago is, example, is an example of a phenomenon that, um, that concerns me, which is when you have wrongful convictions, when you have a Jason Van Dyke case, etc., there's a real desire to chalk it up to bad actors, to rogue cops. That yes, okay, fine, there are, uh, there's a Van Dyke, well, he's a rogue cop. Uh, there's a guy named Ronaldo Guevara in the city of Chicago who's now responsible for 19 wrongful convictions and counting. Uh, he's a rogue cop, you know, is, is a nice way to think about him. Um, John Burge is a famous uh, infamous case in, in Chicago who's actually a torturing police officer who uh, was responsible for imprison imprisoning dozens of African-American men on the south side of Chicago in the 70s and 80s and on. Um, it's nice to think of him as a rogue cop. Um, and it, that's a nice, tidy way to think about it because then you can sort of lock it in a box and put it, put it away. And that's just not the case. These are not rogue cops. These are cops who learn techniques uh, from their colleagues who came up in a system that taught them these techniques. None of that is to say that all cops are bad. None of that is to say that uh, every officer engages in these kinds of actions. I don't believe they do. I believe it's a, sm I believe it's a smaller percentage that engage in these kinds of actions. But uh, it is not rogue cops. It's not the 0.1%. It's, the it's not these 10 guys you've ever heard of. They've all learned these techniques from others. They've all developed these techniques. And they have partners and they have supervisors who have watched them and blessed them in, in doing these things. 
that these techniques, manipulating witnesses, coercing confessions, etc., these are passed down um, and they continue. Uh, and so I think, you know, when I think about places like Chicago, it's a good example of uh, when you really think about it, we can see how much these are ingrained policies and practices, and uh, we can see how hard it is to try to sell that message when people want to really just believe that you can call these guys rogue officers. It seems, like I think on first blush when you hear about civil rights litigation, it seems like having your cake and eating it too. It's like, oh my gosh, you get to be in private practice, and you also get to do cases that have an impact. So maybe that's true. You tell me whether or not it is. And if it's not, what do you think are the shortcomings of, of the job? Uh, so look, it is a wonderful job. Um, and doing this type of work is, uh, you know, I think the lawyers in our firm, we, are all, we all feel extremely privileged to do the type of work that we do. Um, so first and foremost, yes, it is a wonderful job. I am highly recommended to, to anybody who wants to be a, a litigator and wants to pursue uh, the public interest and do civil civil rights work like this. It's a great, it's a great place in which to do it, um, but uh, it is a challenge too. I mean, it is what it takes to win these cases is enormous. What it takes from you physically, what it takes from you, uh, from your families and loved ones and friends is substantial. Um, you represent people who have suffered severe injustices, and you own it because these clients become people who you care about so much. And you feel responsible for ensuring that they win their cases at the end of the day because you could, if they lose, you will feel like injustice is heaped upon injustice. And you don't want to have to turn to them and see them experience a second injustice on top of the one they already experienced. Um, think about the wrongful conviction clients is the most vivid example of that. If I take that case to trial and we lose after this person lost 20 years of their life, it, it will be so devastating, and you don't ever want to bear that burden, and it means it's hard to find balance. It's hard to find work-life balance. You're constantly thinking about your cases. You constantly want to find ways to do more for your clients. Uh, you know, you sometimes feel guilty when you're with your friends or with your family and others because you could be doing more in these cases. So that is a challenge. It's a practical challenge that we face in doing this type of work. We are always trying to teach ourselves to be able to, to put some of this away, to spend time with your family, enjoy it, and then also be, be a dedicated lawyer. Um, so there are those types of challenges. I think the other big challenge is the one that I mentioned to you a little bit before, which is um, it does sometimes feel like we achieve profound results for individual clients one at a time. And so for those individual clients one by one, we can achieve profound changes that might allow them to change the, tra change the trajectory of their own lives and the lives of their family members and others into generations. That's really fulfilling. Um, but we're doing it one person at a time, and the amount of work that goes into doing that one person at a time, sometimes we do ask ourselves, boy, if only we could get bigger change, if only we could get more change to be, to come out of this. Um, and I think that's where I'm talking about the intersection back to uh, finding ways to take all that information that we learn and getting it into the public's awareness and, and doing a better job of that, making sure it gets presented in the media in a way that actually the public, enough of the public hears about it, getting it presented in a way that it gets shared with organizers and activists and others, with nonprofit organizations and others, who can help take this information and do more with it, affect policy, work with politicians, etc. And that's something I think we're really focused on in the coming, coming years. I'll, I'll say this uh, sort of concept, 
you know, when I talk about civil litigation, I, I, I've started to come to sort of this view that, you know, in a capitalist society like this, it, it feels like uh, capitalism run amok when you have a criminal justice system in which somebody could lose their liberty, potentially for the rest of their life, and there is virtually no discovery available to them. They get a police file, potentially, you know, sometimes hours before their trial starts, their lucky days and their lucky weeks, and um, they could lose their life, and they don't get depositions, and they don't get all kinds of wide-ranging discovery. Um, but when it comes to a civil case in which we're going to essentially make a decision about who should have money in their hand and who, where, where should the money go, then we offer a huge, effective process of civil litigation and discovery. I can use depositions. I can use subpoenas. I can use uh, interrogatories, requests to admit, etc. Uh, and we have this whole process to ensure that when it comes to exchanging money, the money ends up in the right hands. And, you know, that system is, is kind of crazy. Um, yeah. And what that means to me is uh, that we have an obligation as civil litigators in the public interest sphere to really do a better job of using those tools, that privilege that we have of getting to go on offense and using the federal rules of civil procedure and, um, and other rules and other tools to, to learn information that can be then shared and used to help other people. Um, and that doesn't mean you're litigating your case to be, lit you know, to be doing something else. You are litigating your case, but part of winning your client's case involves learning a lot of information that can be really important. And I, I'll give you an example of that if, if you have time. So one way in which we try to prove our client's claim is to pursue these Monell claims that I, that I might have mentioned to you before. Monell claims are the idea that you prove that a person's constitutional rights were violated, not just based on a single instance of misconduct by this particular officer, but that what really caused the, con the, the wrongful conviction, if we're using that as an example, is a series of policies and practices of the police department, a custom, a culture within the department that this officer followed that, yes, resulted in a constitutional violation, but it wasn't just the officer's conduct that caused it. It was unconstitutional policies of the department that caused it. And so our firm takes great pride in doing a lot of these Monell-style cases because at the end of the day, a lot of us fundamentally believe that this officer is no different than the officer next to him. He would have done a lot of the same things in terms of how he talked to those witnesses and what he would have done in an interrogation and what evidence he might have actually turned over and not turned over. And all of it was done pursuant to the training and practices of all the guys uh, of the department. And so we want to prove those unconstitutional policies. And so for our client, the best thing we can do is create that additional avenue of liability because uh, it's an additional way for us to win the case, and we fundamentally, fundamentally believe that is what happened in this case, that there were unconstitutional policies that caused this. So that is what we can do to help our client, but it has a really important add-on effect, which is we learned some really important things that matter to the criminal defense bar. So I'll give you an example of that. One of the, we've had two cases, one involving a guy named Jacques Rivera, one involving a guy named Nason Fields. These are both cases in the city of Chicago, both wrongful conviction cases. Both men who uh, had spent more than 20 years in prison for crimes they didn't commit, they were all, their commissions were both thrown out um, in the 2000s. Uh, we filed a, a civil case for Jacques Rivera, another civil rights attorney filed a civil case for Nathan Fields. We ultimately got involved in that civil case. Um, in each of those civil cases, independently, 
when we made requests for the police files and other documents in the cases, in both cases, the city of Chicago produced a file full of notes and other things that had never been produced to Mr. Rivera or Mr. Fields in their underlying criminal cases 20 years earlier. And those files were full of alternate suspect information, evidence that the police had focused on this, on this individual as a suspect before there was any witness or anyone else who put this person on the radar, in other words, strongly suggesting a frame-up those types of things. Really powerful evidence that probably would have given this person a very good chance of never having been convicted in the first place. In each case, we said, where did this file come from? And civil discovery allowed us to figure out that in each case, the file turned up in the basement of a different department, of the, a different area of the Chicago Police Department. And in each case, those files were found among file cabinets full of hundreds of other files. Civil discovery allowed us to find out that here are the names of all those other files that were in those file cabinets. And then civil discovery allowed us to take those names of all those other cases and go to the defense bar and say, there's a bunch of other files down there. You might want to know about it because it might be the case that you have a post-conviction case on behalf of a client or you might have previously represented somebody who has a file full of information that they may have never gotten provided to them. And so that's an example where Doing that Monell claim, develop, using civil discovery tools, allowed us to get information that could be used to potentially help other people um, who, have, uh, who may have suffered a constitutional violation, essentially a Brady violation, uh, denying them access to exculpatory evidence in their cases. Uh, so that, that's an example of, of one way in which this type of Monell discovery, you know, a criminal defendant would never get a chance to do that type of work. Ultimately, in those two cases, what we did is Federal judges, having upon seeing that we can wave a real file in front of them and say, I'm not on a fishing expedition, judge. I have a file that was never turned over to my client. It came from a file cabinet full of hundreds of other files. Will you let me look at some hundred, 200 of these files to figure out if I can prove a systemic policy of withholding exculpatory evidence from criminal defendants? And sure enough, in both cases, uh, we got jury verdicts on our Monell claims in which a jury found that the city of, city of Chicago and its Chicago Police Department maintained an unconstitutional policy of keeping secret files with exculpatory information in them uh, that they systematically hid from criminal defendants. Um, so anyway, that's, a, that's an example of that. Okay, I think that's a good place to stop. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. That's it for this week. Please remember to rate and review us on whatever platform you found this podcast on. And many thanks to the folks at Poddington Bear for composing our theme music. And of course, to the people at the Criminal Justice Policy Program for their ongoing work and support.